None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast and Kratom Science Journal Club, nor on any of the pages of KratomScience.com, should be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com. Your source for all things Kratom. My guest is author of two books on Crohn's disease and outspoken pain patient advocate, Claudia Morandi. In 2017, she created the Don't Punish Pain Rally organization to address difficulties patients are now facing in receiving adequate pain management. She also co-founded the DrPatientForum.com to protect patients and raise awareness on restrictions faced by medical providers. You wrote um, two books about Crohn's disease, uh, and one is called Crohn's, the other C-word, and there's a children's book called Dottie on the Potty. Um, And so you've had Crohn's since you were a child, and so you know firsthand about this chronic pain patient experience. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I've had Crohn's, gosh, I can remember being six years old and watching tv with my brother and just having like like on saturday nights my brother and i would watch tv together and we would eat potato chips because we loved chips growing up and i would have to run to the bathroom i i had always had terrible stomach aches really bad stomach aches and as i got older my disease worsened and there wasn't a diagnosis you know 45 years ago it was just called a nervous stomach but once i was in college i got so so sick that i was rushed into a hospital and they contacted my parents and they said you know you have to fly down here i don't know if she's going to make it through the night and i had no idea how sick i was but i you know from very early on in life i knew what pain was Mm. Uh, my dad also had crohn's disease And I can remember hearing him cry in the bathroom because his pain would be so intense. But I'm Italian and, you know, in an Italian household, you didn't complain about pain. But because I think I let my pain go, um, you know, I just neglected to discuss pain. But because of my neglecting to talk with the doctor about it, I, I get very sick. And I would eventually spend about 10 years in a hospital bed with Crohn's. Mm. Uh, And it wasn't until one visit at the emergency room where I was accused of drug seeking. And that was a term I wasn't familiar with. I'm a retired court stenographer, so I'm no dummy. I've worked in a courtroom for many years, but I I wasn't prepared for hearing that term, drug seeking. And my mom was my advocate and she looked at me and this is probably nine years ago. And she said, you've got to get legislation passed. So these doctors can't get away with this because we were like appalled that we were accused. I say we because, you know, she was always with me. I, I was just appalled that people were being accused of drug seeking when you're born with this debilitating, painful disease. So from there, you know, I, I was able to get healthy, healthier, 
Uh, and I made a vow. I said, if I could ever get out of a hospital bed, I would, I would pay it forward. And about five years, right around 2016, I went on social media. I announced I was going to organize a protest for pain patients. I started with three members. Today, there's over 20,000 chapters in 50 states. And uh, in between all of that, I was able to publish two books, one about a little girl with Crohn's disease. And then the other, you know, my first book, when I was competing in fitness shows, I put that book out. So it's been a busy, chaotic, very sad, uh, you know, very sad time for the pain community. But that's how I ended up here. And, you know, people I advocate for who have been cut off of their long-term opioid therapy, they've been left with Kratom. And for so, so many, Kratom has just given them a life back. Uh, I, I don't use Kratom. Uh, I don't believe Kratom is a replacement for FDA-approved opioids, mm -hmm. but I support Kratom and I support the Safe Kratom Act. So whenever I can, um, I'm happy to show up and, you know, attend one of our, you know, local lawmakers when they discuss Kratom, I try to weigh in so they don't, because it's been banned in Rhode Island and that's something that's that we right. have to reverse. That's right. Um, yeah, and thank you so much. I saw that you even uh, made a statement about the uh, WHO situation and, and to uh, get some uh, comments for that, which we got so many comments, so hopefully they won't uh, recommend that be banned. Had you ever faced any kind of stigma before when you said nine years ago when you were called drug-seeking, or did this just start recently? No, it, it, it didn't start for me until uh, right before the 2016 opioid pain guidelines were put out by the CDC. For the most part, I had always been treated with, um, you know, with compassion, with empathy. Uh, but once those guidelines were published, I knew it would get bad. I never thought it would be I never thought I would be, you know, counting bodies because pain patients are blowing their heads off because of untreated pain. Mm -hmm. Me personally, uh, I was always treated with compassion, but those days are gone. Uh, you know, I was admitted when I had COVID about 10 weeks ago and I was very, very sick. And I, you know, I didn't ask for pain medication. But I thought to myself, if I do ask for pain medication, what will I be met with? So I just, you know, I didn't even bother. But I, you know, I get legislation sponsored and passed addressing this issue. It's it, the stigma. Uh, it, it's got to come to an end. This is just this is cruel, draconian behavior. And I'm looking forward to. Uh, legislation imposing fines on doctors who abandon patients. I, mm. I don't want a thousand dollar fine. I want I want a doctor, uh, especially in a hospital setting. If they deny adequate, if they're withholding pain medicine, these doctors, these hospitals should be fined starting at two hundred fifty thousand mm. dollars. You know, and that's the only unfortunately, this country only responds to litigation and money. Yeah. So. It, we're in a pretty dire situation. It's it's very very crucial. So how so this started around uh, the 2016 CDC guidelines. It's kind of confusing because a lot of people 
don't understand. They're seeing all these documentaries and TV shows coming out about how Big Pharma pushed all these pills on people, which happened, but there's another side of it where... It, was it just a response to that fact that a lot of people were becoming addicted to uh, opioids, um, that the CDC passed these guidelines? I'll ask you, what do the guidelines say, and, and well, why I'm do the doctors? Make, yeah. I can simplify it for you, because okay. it's very confusing. So basically, the CDC created pain guidelines to fast-track opioid litigation, there were many overdoses involving oxycontin oxycodone heroin cocaine uh, alcohol benzodiazepine but what the cdc did is they tried to um i don't believe for one minute that they that this was done with i don't trust the cdc in my my personal opinion the cdc created pain guidelines strictly to fast track opioid litigation Mm. Uh, you know, anti-opioid crusaders is how we refer to them. They they petitioned uh, in the early 2000s an organization called Prop Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing, mm-hmm. collaborated with you know attorney generals and all these other people to get the FDA to pass pain guidelines uh, what what a doctor should prescribe what's recommended and the FDA distanced themselves. They said, no way. This will not only bring harm to innocent people, you know, pain patients, but it's going to uh, create the greatest overdosing epidemic of all times. Because once doctors stopped prescribing, uh, we interrupted the safe supply of drugs for, for addicts. But the CDC published these guidelines strictly to fast track opioid litigation. Now, the CDC may have said, well, we're really concerned with the amount of overdoses in the country. Uh, You know, everybody has OxyContin in their system, but that's also not true because the CDC conflated overdoses. So we don't know how many people had OxyContin in their system. We don't know how many people actually overdosed on OxyContin. But we do know that OxyContin was a scapegoat, and we do know that OxyContin is an amazing drug for pain, and we do know that people with cancer can no longer get OxyContin. In order to have um, a successful lawsuit, you need a scapegoat. The scapegoat was OxyContin. Hmm. Now, as a 53-year-old woman, I can tell you Never in my life did a doctor just nilly-willy give me a script for opiates. Yeah. Whenever I was prescribed medication with Crohn's, a doctor would say, and I can remember this 30 years ago. I, you know, I, I was fortunate. I never really took pain medication uh, until I was so, so sick. But whenever a doctor wrote a script, he would say, she would say, this is habit forming. Only take this when you need this. So when I hear these random stories, you know, people say, well, doctors were passing them out like TikToks. Were they really? Because I never encountered that. Now I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a, you know, a pretty educated person. I would imagine I would be one of the easiest people to get a script for opiates, right? If we, if we're going to go by what the general public assumes, but how come nobody ever forced opiates on me? <laughs> it mm-hmm. never happened. 
citizens. So the CDC published, they created their own guidelines regarding pain. But the people who created these guidelines were paid to speak out against opiates prior to writing the guidelines. So they weren't unbiased people. Mm. And that's why there's so much anger in the pain community. The American Cancer Society tried to sound the alarm. Whenever anybody sounded the alarm, this hate organization prop would say, oh, that's because you're paid by Big Pharma to, you know, to fight for opiates. But that wasn't the case. The people Mm. who wrote the guidelines were actually uh, experts in opioid litigation. Uh, So. In my opinion, it was this is this. I compare this to a Ponzi scheme. There's, it's no different. The people who wrote the CDC guidelines were paid prior to writing the ga- guidelines to speak out. If these guidelines, once these guidelines were published, it was a win-win situation for all 50 attorney generals. Uh, it was a win-win for the DEA because the DEA could start to target doctors for prescribing above what the CDC recommended. Mm-hmm. Then the DEA can seize the assets. So it's a win-win for the DEA. The state's attorney generals, these attorney generals who are involved with this opioid litigation, it would be a win-win for them. They get to advance their career with each doctor that they that they indict. And also they can receive money and you know money from opioid litigation. So everybody had um Everybody had something to gain when the CDC published these guidelines. And the only people that would lose would be the people who were dependent on opioids, people like myself, people with sickle cell, people with cancer, rare disease. So there was nothing unintended about these guidelines. These guidelines were one million percent created. They were intended to harm the innocent. And that's usually what happens with litigation. When the FDA distanced themselves from the CDC, they said, if you do this, we're going to have the greatest overdosing epidemic in history. And Mm -hmm. here we are. We're living it, right? People are overdosing. Some, you know, I live in the smallest state in the country. In one small town, we've had 30 fatal overdoses. Wow. Yeah. Related to street fentanyl. Guess how many people overdosed on OxyContin the past five years? Zero. Mm. Not one person. Guess how many people overdosed on OxyContin across 24 states the past three years? 12. But here's the kicker. None of those people overdosed on OxyContin alone. They Mm -hmm. all had other drugs in their system. Yeah. So, you know, America has been duped. And hopefully, you know, we've had a lot of success the past week, past two weeks in the pain community. A judge just bounced uh, one of uh, the members of the hate organization prop. Her name is Dr. Anna Lemke. She's some cuckoo psychiatrist. I've heard her. He just bounced (laughs) ass out of court, uh, which is huge because finally a judge said enough. You know, the makers of Suboxone, this drug was created to treat pain. You have to show me otherwise. And Anna Lemke flailed. So I look forward to watching her um, her house of cards tumble along with Andrew Kolodny, Roger Chow. These people are responsible for not only the 400% in, 
and fatal overdoses, but they're responsible for pain patient suicides. And, and mm-hmm. you know, it will happen, but it's going to take some time. And yeah, you did talk about how the overdoses are skyrocketing as prescriptions for these opioids are lowering. Uh, the DEA is making rules to to limit manufacturing of legitimate prescription drugs, and so people, if they don't find kratom, they're turning to the street. And every every street opiate now contains fentanyl that I've heard um, so they're just left to you know do a crapshoot and even Kratom's in a gray market it's not standardized yet so there's a lot of bad actors that are you know just selling contaminated stuff and and things like that so that's I think that's what people have to understand is if, when you're getting a prescription from a doctor and it's, it's so much safer than getting something off off the street you you talked about the recent ruling in, in california so so what was that uh ruling um were they trying to sue um doctor and it was thrown out of court so you know once again greedy uh attorney generals were trying to sue opioid manufacturers okay. uh, two of them one was tivo and the other was J and J, and I've not had any. You know, people think I work with these pharmaceutical companies. I've never spoken with one uh, pharma rep uh, in my life from J and J or Tiva, uh, but they put out a great product, and there's no denying it's a great product. So, you know, it was a fifty billion dollar lawsuit, and uh, the judge. The judge said no. The judge ruled in favor of the defendants. And that that's precedent setting. Now, why did this judge rule in favor of the defendants? I have a 42 page uh, decision that I've not had a chance to read yet. God almighty. I hope I, I'm never forced to read a 42 page decision, but <laughs> it's just it's got success written all over it. Anna Lemke apparently was, you know, attempted to bamboozle, to lie uh, to the judge, to jurors. I guess there were jurors. Like I said, I haven't had a chance to really delve into it. But I think Anna Lemke, you know, gave some crazy facts saying, you know, something like 50 percent of all people who take pain medication get addicted. And whatever she said, don't quote me on that. But whatever she said, the judge said, but there's no data, there's no science supporting you. It's junk science. So Anna Lemke brought junk science to a courtroom and good for this judge, right? I called the judge, I left a message, They, you know, thanking him. You know, thank you, your honor, thank you. Because I think so many people have been affected now who can't receive pain medication. It's not just pain patients, it's, you know, elderly who have broken their spot broken their backs they can't even get a script for pain medication now and and i think the more people who are touched by this issue perhaps this judge was touched by this issue you know all these other judges they were just they they've been um sucked into the propaganda and i worked with judges they're no smarter than the lawyers they're no smarter than the jurors But I think this judge finally had the spine to say, enough, enough, you get nothing. Now, of course, the plaintiffs will appeal, but I don't think they're going to win. This is this is precedent setting. Uh, And, you know, oftentimes cases like this will be won in a court of public opinion. And once I'm able to organize something, I want 
I'd love to see about 15 people outside the court just thanking the judge. So mm-hmm. uh, they were trying to sue the drug makers. You know, I mean, look, t- what, this was a well thought out plan, right? You publish the CDC guidelines. You intimidate doctors. You embed the guidelines in every electronic um, healthcare system across the country. Uh, you promote Suboxone as a safe and effective drug to treat pain, which is not. And then you, you know, and then you have algorithms making a decision on who's worthy of receiving medication. See, everybody jumped on the opioid gravy train. How can I profit? How can I profit? There's some poor bastard on LinkedIn. He created some eye pill device. I said, oh my God, you poor man, you created this device. He's like, oh, everybody's overdosing. I said, nobody's overdosing. That's probably why your, your, your device, your whatever you invented is fails because all of these greedy, gluttonous bastards felt the need to profit off of my community. It's, it's so mm. vile. I get so worked up talking about it. But at the end of the day, Brian, nobody's overdosing on OxyContin. Nobody's overdosing on oxycodone. Nobody's overdosing on hydrocodone, hydromorphone, because there's the the DEA slash manufacturing. Our government has created this colossal failure war on drugs. Uh, Mm. And that's why we remain to be in this terrible situation. And and this is really like a new front on the war on drugs. I mean, the, it's basically the DEA going after, you know, drugs should be a matter of health care, whether somebody's addicted to drugs or need drugs to help with their pain. I, I take blood pressure, blood pressure medication. I don't have to, you know, beg the doctor to give it to me, give me a prescription. It comes in the mail. Um, yeah. There are doctors that are being arrested. I I. Uh, saw your interview with Dr. Wren, who was a physician, and he had uh, the I think the DEA came knocking on his door and mm-hmm. I guess arrested him for just giving out prescriptions. Um, how widespread is this, and like how many doctors have been arrested? Well, I have more doctors than I know what to do with. Usually, these doctors contact me before they contact lawyers, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know how doctors find me. To be honest with you, I never thought. Um, you know, I mean, I've got my my nonprofit. It's called the Doctor Patient Forum because there was such a need for to bring awareness to what's happening. And I'm not, I'm not a. Uh, it's not my forte, right? Advocating for doctors, but once they found me, they all had the same story. They were treating patients' pain. They were prescribing above the ninety morphine milligram equivalent. They would get a knock on the door. There would be sometimes 30 agents with guns drawn outside their office. They would, you know, tackle patients and doctors to the ground, handcuff them. Uh, They would keep the doctors away from their spouses. And this is how they do it. And, you know, the Department of Justice is vilifying, is sentencing doctors for prescribing. And they're, they're they're telling jurors, well, you know, this doctor prescribed outside the scope of medical practice. And it's this, the Controlled Substances Act. is it's, it's used against them. But the Controlled Substances Act is the reason why we're in this horrible situation. Of course, these doctors have a need to prescribe it. 
Were there some bad actors? Probably, right? There's bad doctors, there's good doctors, there's bad patients, there's good patients. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Renz, an 82-year-old black man who was tackled by, you know, by the by the feds, and he was a suboxone doctor. So guess what happened to his suboxone patients? Many of them overdosed, they're dead. Mm And, and this is what our president, you know, whether it's Biden or Trump, they don't care, right? They don't care. Everybody hates addicts. Everybody hates pain patients. Nobody cares. But the DEA, um, you know, what we need to do with that whole horrible situation is we've got to amend the Controlled Substances Act. And we had a victory a few days ago. Uh, there's an attorney, two attorneys. There's one, Kelly Deneen. I've never spoken with her. She's on Twitter. And Jen Olivo, I spoke with her, or Jen Oliva. And my vice president, Bev Schechtman, reached out to Jen a few years ago and said, this is what's happening. You know, we, we, there's no more doctors to treat pain. And a doctor was convicted. Uh, another attorney defended a doctor, not Dr. Wren. And Jen and Kelly, those two lawyers from Twitter, they submitted a, an amicus brief uh, on behalf of, you know, on behalf of these doctors. And the Supreme Court just said, OK, we're going to listen. And, and that's huge. Th- this mm. is also precedent setting because now the Supreme Court's going to get involved with why a doctor has been arrested and sent to prison for treating pain. Uh, And this is, you know, I'm not familiar with what happens in the Supreme Court, but I do know that the Supreme Court listens to maybe one percent of the cases that come their way. And this is all happening because of pain advocates, pain advocates Mm -hmm. historically. Well, historically, advocates are, you know, are responsible for effecting change. So we've got doctors incarcerated. I've got Dr. Joel Smithers. He's in prison for 40 years. He just had his fifth baby. And these doctors, nobody cares about once you get locked up and, you know, 60 minutes. Oh, what a disgusting organization. 60 minutes gave these scum of the earth a platform. uh, And, you know, they were interviewing these poor doctors who were locked up. And they're hammering these doctors like you, you wrote out this many scripts and you, you, you know, because of you, there were 500,000 pills. Well, let's talk about it. These are pain management doctors that, of course, they're going to be the highest prescribers. Mm -hmm. How many patients were there? How many pills was each patient getting a day? Does a person with cancer, do they not deserve to be able to take four pills if necessary? So it's all Brian, I wish I could. I so wish I could say it's not propaganda, but America has been duped into believing OxyContin created new addicts. Mm -hmm. That's not how addiction works. Mm Yeah, it seems it seems like it's it's attacking the substance rather than, you know, what's behind the addiction. Uh, uh, Have you seen the show uh, Dope Sick? Oh, God, no, I would never watch it. Actually, I canceled my Hulu account because I called it dope sickening. Yeah. Uh, But see, Hollywood, they too had to profit off of the pain community. And that's Mm -hmm. the power of propaganda, right? Who can profit? Hollywood, lawyers, pharmaceutical companies. So everybody's profiting off of the poor scapegoat 
I, I refuse to watch, uh, you know, I, so many people, there's so much controversy surrounding dope sick. I, if you saw my tweet, I call it dope sickening. Mm-hmm. There's all of these dope sick sheeple and they attack the pain community uh, because they got addicted to pills, but chances are they're addicted to something else because that's yeah. addiction. No shame, but they feel the need to attack people like myself who, when need it, are dependent on pain medication. So everybody profits, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, somebody said, well, who profits? When I had to testify, somebody asked me, well, who profits off of this, this agenda? I said, the, the, probably the smarter question to ask is who doesn't profit? Because I can't mm-hmm. find anybody who hasn't profited. Yeah. So, but no, I haven't seen it. I canceled Hulu. Are the physicians doing anything to fight back against yeah. uh, against this? No, I do all the fighting for them. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, So there's some doctors that are really amazing that I work with, uh, and they're vocal, and they, they don't care. They're, they're like, I don't care. Send me to prison. But for the most part, no. Uh, doctors are not proactive in fighting for patients. It's easier to... Uh, lay over and play dead than it is to fight. I find uh, I find that more uh, nurse practitioners fight, more women fight for this cause than men. Uh, I don't think doctors were, you know, they weren't, they didn't become doctors to fight. They became doctors to help, but uh, doctors do what they're told. And if the policy is to not prescribe, then they stop prescribing. You know, I took my daughter to the pediatrician and She's like, oh, you know, thank you for your advocacy. I follow you. And because of you, I've made a conscious decision to never prescribe again. I was like, what? I said, oh, my God. I said, that's the last I I would hope that's the last message you take away. And she said, I'm too afraid. I'm too afraid. But you see, doctors are some of these doctors are so so they're just stupid. Some of the doctors like the young doctors. Oh, my God. We ain't seen nothing yet. People think it's bad now. Wait for the newbies who, you know, these young doctors, they were raised on devices, right? Looking at phones and mm. they can't make eye contact. Well, these young ones, oh my God, they're so brainwashed against the safety and efficacy of opiates. So I, I think what's going to eventually happen is the same thing's going to happen that did in the 80s. Doctors are going to start getting fined for not prescribing, and some may even get sent to prison for not prescribing. It's History mm-hmm. is only history is doomed to repeat itself, right? Yeah. And that's where we're going. The fifth vital sign was created to stop the suffering. And I've got these idiot doctors on LinkedIn like, oh, the fifth vital sign created. Uh, the opioid epidemic, but here, try my, try my, my device. You got doctors who are profiting too. You know, they're forcing spinal stimulators and injections. I've Those heard are- of that. It's terrible. It sounds terrible. Oh yeah. No. And I really, I'll devour a doctor while I, while I support prescribers. I'm also the first one that'll report your ass to the state medical board, but I fight a little differently than the other advocates. I don't stop till I hit bone. Because you're bringing harm to my community while profiting. No way. Not going to happen. I'll tell you what's not happening in Rhode Island because I'm in a state of one million people and I think I know half of them. So, (laughs) you know, my vision when I started this is 
change infrastructure in Rhode Island. You know, get rid of all the drill mills, find out who's treating their patients with compassion, empower them, support them, find the bad doctors, destroy them, eliminate them. And that's what needs to be done. The same way the CDC has made pain patients an example, right? The Mm CDC is responsible for slaughtering pain patients. I'm going to do the same to bad doctors in Rhode Island. I'm going to make an example out of you so others don't follow your footsteps. Because, Brian, we're forced to act like lunatics right now, where we've been put in this horrible situation and the pain community has been too nice. The niceties are gone. It's time to fight fire with fire. And that's what I'm doing in Rhode Island. And yeah, so for people who don't know, I mean, this is all over the place. Like uh, my wife's couple of her girlfriends are nurses and they say the, uh, the one friend I, I was talking about this issue with, with her and she said, yeah, there's a I have a cancer patient who's in his 70s and they won't give him anything. Uh, yeah. You know, they've given Tylenol. And you said you recently talked. Um, somebody contacted you who has sickle cell and they gave her Tylenol and sent her home. Um, That was awesome. Last night, I just, she called me. I mm -hmm. was in a restaurant. She called me from her hospital bed in Tennessee. Sweet, sweet girl. Not a girl. She's 24, but I'm old, so I call everybody boys and girls. (laughs) What kind of thing do you do when when they contact you? How do you um, help them? So... You know, if I'm, you know, if they live in Rhode Island or in Massachusetts or close by, and I, if I think, think I can help them, I will. I, I mean, I receive 200. Sometimes I wake up to 200 messages. Please wow. help me. Please help me. So and not just the United States, Australia, Finland, Canada, the UK. It's, it's because these horrific 2016 CDC guidelines have bled into other countries. Uh, so last night, for instance, this girl called me. I received about. I don't know, maybe 50 messages yesterday. And her, I knew she was young. As soon as I listened to her voicemail, I was driving to a restaurant and I said, I'm going to, I looked at my, my 16 year old. I said, I got to help this girl. She needs help. So, you know, I spoke with her. I said, what's going on? She told me, uh, I will say that I try to give precedent. I try to give my attention to sickle cell veterans and elderly, uh, before anybody else. I received a lot of hate for that, but that's how I roll, right? (laughs) And uh, because sickle cell, you'll die if you're in a crisis, you'll die. Mm -hmm. They need my help before anybody else. So uh, I just said, put me on speakerphone, hit the red button, get your nurse in here. The nurse came in. I'm very polite at all times. I never want to jeopardize anyone's care. And I said, I think we both have, uh, a, you know, the same goal in mind, and that's for this patient to not suffer. But we're failing miserably because she called some random old vet out of Providence, Rhode Island for help. This shouldn't be happening. Why is this happening? And she said, well, I'm going to get the hospitalist. Uh, so we got the hospitalist involved. I-, I was never able to speak with the doctor, but they they put the order in. But that's what it took. Why did it take that phone call? Why did I have to call a hospital in Tennessee and advocate? Shouldn't be happening. So that's how I roll. That's how I do things. Um, When I take somebody to pain management, I never know. The doctor never knows that I'm an advocate. They think I'm a family member who's an advocate. Mm. And I my job is to keep the peace. Right. I don't want to I don't want to make a doctor uncomfortable. I don't want to make a patient uncomfortable. 
uh, and I listen to what the doctor has to say, nurse practitioner, PA. And if I think they're lying, I bring awareness to that fact. Don't be dishonest with the patient. Uh, you know, a lot of these doctors try to push Suboxone on people. Suboxone is very, very addictive. Uh, harder mm -hmm. to come off of Suboxone than heroin for most people with addiction that I advocate for. They tell me it was harder to get off Suboxone than heroin. I've heard that before, too, from some of my guests on this podcast, in fact. And uh, so I advocate differently than others. A lot of people don't advocate because they're afraid. They don't know what to do. Uh, I have no problem advocating. Uh, I'll, you know, oftentimes I develop relationships with the doctors and we mm -hmm. continue to work on, you know, maybe legislation because I want to help the doctors, but yeah. I can't help the doctors if they're dishonest. So I, I ask doctors right up front, I'll have more respect for you if you say, look, Claudia, I'm afraid to prescribe instead of lying to a patient. And I think that's fair, right? Honesty is free, but uh, it's it's difficult for some of these doctors to be honest. What um, types of legis legislation would, do you want to see passed that would ha would help the situation? I know you talked about um, fines being imposed for doctors who just leave their uh, patients to deal with their pain. Um, is there anything other than that that would help? Well, the governor signed my bill into law in June, and my bill exempts people with chronic intractable pain from the 2016 CDC guidelines. Mm. Even with that law in place, it's still very, very difficult to convince a doctor to treat pain. Mm. Uh, I would like to see, uh, you know, my very first piece of legislation was it turned it was a resolution because it had no support and it was called the emergency room compassion bill. Uh, and a resolution was useless. But I think for me in Rhode Island, this legislation will hopefully be a stepping stone, stepping stone to other bills. I would love to see, uh, you know, the state enforce fines on doctors who don't who don't who abandon patients. Uh, a phenomenal advocate out of Oklahoma, Tamara Stewart, just had um, a committee was created and they brought in experts and, you know, and patients, how forced tapering has been detrimental. Uh, but I really think in order to effect change, for me, what's important is to stop the, the, dro the, the draconian behavior in the emergency rooms. I would love to see legislation imposing fines. For me, that's a goal because, uh, you're, you're most vulnerable when you get rushed into an emergency room. Also, mm -hmm. I would like to see, um, you know, more money be invested into pain management and not, not pushing crazy devices, but give these doctors the training, give them the, the, the education, the CMEs that they need to prescribe without worry. Uh, and, and, you know, these are all easily achievable things, but we've invested how many billions of dollars in the opioid epidemic and we've gone nowhere. Uh, and it, it's only gonna get worse. It's not going to get better because like I said, we've interrupted the safe supply. And I think that's why Kratom can be uh, so helpful for so mm. many people. Like I said, I don't, I, you know, I have to emphasize whenever I do a podcast, I always emphasize, I don't use cannabis. I don't use Delta eight. I don't use mm. Kratom, but if my child uh, 
gets Crohn's disease, which I hope neither one of them do, and Kratom can bring them relief, I would much prefer my child taking something like Kratom instead of, um, you know, instead of other things, because, you know, it just seems like a safer option. However, it's not a replacement for FDA approved pain medication and neither is cannabis. And I don't want my kid smoking a big fatty either, because that's (laughs) not, that's not what I represent. I'm a fitness competitor. So, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm very proactive with my lifestyle, but People need to know their Kratom is safe, right? Mm-hmm. And I see these gas stations sell Kratom, uh, and I speak with various Kratom vendors. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hope their Kratom is safe. I do, like I said, I don't know much, much about it. I know some people get very, very sick if they take too much of it. And I wish there was a place. There's a phenomenal advocate. Her name is Kelly Devine, and I usually all of my Kratom inquiries, I ask Kelly. Uh, of course, I reach out to Mac, Kratom's lobbyist, right? Kratom mm-hmm. pays their lobbyist 180000 monthly. And that's why Kratom's still here, because you got great lobbyists. Uh, but, you yeah. know, I, I hope the Kratom is safe. And I, I don't, you know, another piece of legislation, Kratom will not stay banned in Rhode Island much longer, I don't think. That's good. Um, and, and I saw a tweet you um, wrote about uh, the international ban on Kratom, and you said Dr. Roger Chow is involved in this proposed ban. Uh, who is he, and what's his connection to the uh, proposed Kratom ban? So Dr. Roger Chow is the person who wrote the 2016 CDC guidelines. Oh, okay. And he is, uh, you know... They, they, they use their same researchers, and I guess they consider him to be a researcher, uh, but people have caught on to Chow. You know, he had to rec- recuse himself for one of the last meetings regarding the pain guidelines because he said, you know, I receive money. He receives money to speak out against opiates, and he receives money now to speak out against Kratom. And, and the Kratom community has something the pain community doesn't. They've got lobbyists, and they've got really phenomenal researchers. And, you know, I think the Kratom people could really disseminate Roger Chow, destroy him because he needs to go away. He's a terrible, terrible human being. Uh, He's, um, you know, he just, he cherry picks data. And if he's paid to speak out against Kratom, who's paying him? Where, you know, where is this money coming from? He receives funding to speak out against, uh, against whatever people need for pain or addiction. It's, but I'll tell you what, he doesn't speak out against Suboxone, which is a little strange to me, right? Yeah, right? yeah. Suboxone pushers, they're everywhere. Look, it's yeah. a great drug for addiction. But why, why would you suggest somebody go on Suboxone if they're taking Kratom to manage pain or addiction? That, how grotesque is that? Yeah, it, it seems backwards to me, and I did have addiction doctors on that suggested that we had a conversation about it. But um, it's—I think well, you were on—you spoke to Doctor Drew, and he was talking about Suboxone, Suboxone, Suboxone the whole time, and he—I didn't even realize it was supposed to be for pain management because I doesn't it have naloxone in it, so wouldn't that? I thought it was for yeah. weaning off heroin or, or something like that. I mean, yeah, it is. Yeah. Suboxone wasn't created to be taken long term, but 
you know, the people who make Suboxone are like, oh, my God, we're going to be so rich. <laughs> now yeah. that these guidelines are published, you know, we're just going to. And the hate organization prop, they've been mm-hmm. known to chant, bupe it away, because it's buprenorphine. Buprenorphine, yeah. You know, there's the, the sick thing is whenever we do just a little bit of research about these people, it always leads back to money. Mm-hmm. You know. Who's paying them? How much money do they receive in grants? Like how much money did Dr. Roger Chow receive in grants to speak out against Kratom? You know, nobody, you know, and my, our researchers, oh my God, they, they unravel things that nobody can seem to find, but you know what? Nobody really, nobody cares because when, like I said, people hate addicts. So when when you're talking about addiction, people are like, yeah, whatever. And I see addicts are treated horribly, but so are pain patients. So, um, you mm-hmm. know, to take someone off of, to suggest, you know, a doctor suggesting, oh, no, Kratom's very dangerous. You should be on Suboxone. Where is your moral compass? Why in God's name would any doctor suggest Suboxone over safe Kratom? I don't understand it other than money. Yeah. I mean, and you know, Brian, it's hard to find anybody who speaks out against opiates who isn't paid. I have not found one doctor, one person, one vocal ad, one vocal person who speaks out against opiates who hasn't been compensated. And that's scary. I guess I've, I've been naive the past 50 years. I didn't, I guess I didn't realize how dishonest doctors were and how much how much money means to some people. There is this other issue um, of this uh, algorithm that pain patients have to uh, uh, subject themselves to, and it's called Narc's Care. What is that? Can you explain what that is and how this is affecting uh, pain patients? So to give you a background of Narc's care, uh, five years ago, my vice president contacted me. She was in a hospital bed with kidney stones and um, she was denied pain medication because uh, she was abused as a child. Mm. And the doctor, this old man, disgusting doctor, put his hand on her arm and said, oh, you'll thank me one day. I can't give you pain medication, but you'll thank me one day. And he basically said, you know, because you were raped as a child, your brain is different. And I said, when she called me, she was crying from the hospital bed because of the vice president at the doctor patient forum. Narc's care is going to be discussed on NPR this week. And my vice president has dedicated five years of her life because this algorithm has destroyed her life. So Narc's Care is an algorithm uh, that's that was created by this software company, Apris, and it's now been acquired by, I think, Equifax. So they're pretty, they, these are giants, right? They're, this is corporate America. Mm-hmm. Narc's Care is a score. Uh, that determines whether you're going to abuse pain medication or become addicted. And it has Narc's Care, the, it's an algorithm, and it pulls information from your past. So if you go to get a script filled for Vicodin and you're, you take that medication, and then three months later you get diagnosed with attention deficit and you have to go on say Adderall, 
uh, the pharmacist could possibly deny you because you have a high NARCSCARE score. So it's an algorithm that pulls information from the state's PMP, that's your prescription monitor base in your state. Mm -hmm. And it also pulls information from your past, whether you were arrested, whether you were abused, whether you're black, whether you're gay, whether you had bad grades in high school. And it's never been externally validated, but doctors use NARCS care to decide whether you're going to get medication. Mm -hmm. Within NARCS care's algorithm is the opioid risk score. And that was developed by Dr. Lynn Webster, who's profited greatly off this tool. And the opioid risk score has five questions. One of them is, have you been abused as a child? And if you're a female and you answer yes, you get three points. If you're a man and you answer yes, you get zero points. The more points, the higher the NARCS care score, the least likely you'll be able to receive your pain medication, your attention deficit medication, or your anxiety medication. Mm. My vice president had to choose between her Ativan, which she would take as needed, or her pain medication to manage debilitating kidney stones and Crohn's disease. Narc's care is used in North Carolina. Narc's care has been banned in Rhode Island and it will never see the light of day in Rhode Island. My vice That's president good. reached out to Maya Solovitz, a phenomenal journalist. I had her on the podcast. Yes. Yep. And Maya was so kind, right? And did, I mean, just like hard, phenomenal, phenomenal journalist. I wish I could write like Maya. Maya put That's out it. that article in The Wired and NPR picked up on it. So this week, uh, they're going to be live on NPR. I don't know the date yet. And they're going to discuss how NARCs care. And I, I believe one of the CEOs of uh, APRIS is going to be on as well. Great, you know, it's great. a discriminatory tool. So once again, advocates, right? Advocates mm. and great journalists. And Maya's just been so gracious to the pain community. Uh, you know, Jacob Scalum, I'm sure you see, I think that's his last name, or Solum is another one. So Narcscare mm. is just, it needs to be banned in all 50 states. But it's been... You know, it's all of the, it's just another scam. It's another company who profits off of the fake opioid crisis. I call it the fake opioid crisis because when you think of opiates, what do you think of? You think of pills, mm -hmm. but so it's the opioid, it's the street fentanyl overdosing epidemic. So that's mm -hmm. what NARCS care is. How do you get your NARCS care score? Well, you can ask your doctor and they won't tell you. You can ask a pharmacist or if you get admitted to the hospital. Here's something about NARCS care. If you live in a state like Texas and you have to go to three different hospitals, that increases your NARCS care score. Um, if you go to three different pharmacies, you know, you're in a massive state like Texas or California. If a pharmacist, if a pharmacy doesn't have your medication and you go to another pharmacy, that increases your NARCS care score. Uh, so it's just it's just some random algorithm that was created with the help of the hate organization prop mm -hmm. uh, because they, you know, of course they collaborated with, with them. Uh, it, it's all the same people, yeah. Brian, it's all the same people and back you, in genocide. You said Equifax developed it. 
Uh, Apris, and I believe uh, Apris um, has been acquired by Equifax now. Okay, Equifax, by the way, was the company that ha- accidentally or whatever released a, a million people's uh, uh, yeah. personal yeah, information. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, dat- dat- personal information, your data is worth more than gold now. Yeah. And you know these uh, the these scum who profit off of my community. You know they're like, oh, invest in these companies. So now these people own shares in the company. So mm-hmm. not only are they responsible for people blowing their heads off, but they actually purchase stock to maintain, um, you know, to keep this propaganda. You know, propaganda is expensive. Yeah, a lot of money. So it, it's so unfortunate. I I wish, you know. I, I'm just astonished that people are so evil to their core. Yeah, definitely. And and I got one last question, and thank you so much for, for spending time with me and doing this podcast. Um, have you have you ever thought about running for office in Rhode Island? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'd rather get waterboarded, but <laughs> I, I hope I don't, but... <laughs> I don't, I don't want to because then they're going to, you know, I'm the advocate. People love to hate. I, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll, I'm routinely attacked. I'm yeah. unfazed. <laughs> uh, maybe because I'm from Providence, not much phases me. I feel like I'm going to be forced to run. And I, you know, I have this conversation with my lobbyist all the time because he's a close friend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the only one of the reasons I wouldn't run, Brian, to be quite honest, I go to bed at eight o'clock at night and sometimes they're in session until midnight and I got to get my nine hours of sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't it's not off the table. Uh, I wouldn't. I don't know. It's not off the table just yet. I would like to see the people who we have in office uh, do the right thing. But once again, Money seems to deter people from being honest. Yeah, and it's and it's tough because uh, there's no money in being a pain patient. So it's it's or uh, honest. Yeah. <laughs> there's no money in being honest. Yeah, really. <laughs> oh, but I did see. Uh, I see several. I saw something circulating on TikTok about me running for for office. I laughed because there's so many there's so many crazy things out there that I hear about myself. I don't. You know, uh, but, you know, I hope to not run, but you never know. Find Claudia Mirandi at the doctorpatientforum.com, don'tpunishpainrally.com. She's on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. And if you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, comment, rate, review. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The music is Risey. The song is called Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.